If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, 'cause I know nothing's gonna be alright. Hi, I'm Ellie Mayo Hagen. I am Owen Jones, and this is Agitpod, our podcast. I have no more to add to that because it was supposed to be a fortnightly podcast, but it's been quite erratic. Although the last one was about a fortnight ago, roughly. It's just this is time of upheaval. Lots stick of with things. us, stick with us. It'll come eventually. Just have to be patient. <laughs> now you can hear snigging down the background. The award-winning, in fact, won an amazing award just this week or last week. He can correct us. It Multi-award is winning. My fantastic colleague um, and someone who had a big, ins- I'd say, a big impact on both you and me and other young writers when we were yeah, in definitely. our teens. That make him feel old. Uh, it is, of course, Gary Young. Hi there. Hello. Here he is. Yes, Welcome. at my kitchen table. It yeah, is. my kitchen table. Yeah, I keep eating all of Gary's food. You've so eaten a lot of the bread. I have, yeah. Really? Yeah. Are you pregnant or something? Uh, well, mum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And the father. <laughs> I didn't want you to find out like this, but yeah. you brought up now. Yeah. So, uh... Funny you should say that, <laughs> I was hoping to break that line. Um, I thought we're cynically doing that now in order to boost our numbers and get a viral story about how you told your mum via the medium of your yeah. podcast and, you and your partner. Agit yeah. preg. BuzzFeed could do an article on it. I'd really appreciate so it. So we might pretend and carry on with this charade <laughs> and pretend she's pregnant. Anyway, Gary Young, yes, it is uh, is a massive pleasure for you to be here. Well, we're there, but you know what I mean. Yes, well, I'm I'm delighted. You do make me feel old. (laughs) Whenever people say, oh, I've been reading you for years, that means I'm so many years older than they are, usually. Um, But anyway. I remember reading a piece when I was a teenager by you, which was about how you were a teenage Trotskyist. Yes. You wrote that many years ago. Memoirs of a Teenage Trot, which was... In the year 2000, I think. Is yeah, so right? I would have been about 15. Yes. I and never that, read any of your pieces, so that would be... There you go, <laughs> there you go. And yes, it was about being... When I was 15, I joined the Workers' Revolutionary Party. The, um, so that was a very odd... Because my dad was in the militant tendency, another Trotskyist outfit. But the WRP were quite notorious because their leader, Jerry Healy, and others were um, problematic. Rapist. Yeah, I mean, well, that's... Was a rapist. Yeah. Although I didn't know that at the time. No, of course not. And that happened... I joined when I was 15 in the minor strike and I left when I was 16 because they were so crazy. Um, Vanessa Redgrave, the actor, was in it. Vanessa Redgrave. They, they were very strong in the acting um, fraternity. Vanessa, Corin, Francis de la Tour. It's like left-wing Scientologists. Yes. <laughs> and um, their thing was that you had to subordinate your own needs to the needs of the party. And basically what that means is the revolution is going to take place any time now. It's all 1917 in Russia. And so everybody has to be ready. So I was 15. So I'd be like, um, there was one time when I went off on a school trip to Wuthering Heights country. And when I got back, there were all these messages at home like, where have you been? And I said, it was on a school trip. You know, the state's picking up people left, right and centre. And they thought I'd been kidnapped by the state. And one <laughs> of the... One of the reasons why I left, I was doing an A-level when I was 16. And so it was a couple of years early and I was doing it at night school and I needed to revise. And I said, you know, can I take some time off party work? I applied for time off party work. And they said, no. 
and um, you know your A levels will be no use to you come the revolution, and um, and that just did seem absurd to me. And the minor strike had really been defeated, and I thought, well, it's just not going to be a revolution between now and my A levels. And it came down to like either I can take them on, or I could deal with my Caribbean matriarch mum. And it was just not much of a contest, you know, so I <laughs> took on the um, self-appointed agents of the uh, international working class and said, oh, well, I've got to go, obviously. Um, and that was the end of that. But um, apart from that then, about a year later or two years later, the Daily Mail started doing this hit job on me for reasons that are too complicated and too boring to go into, but it went on for about Daily three Mail going to Daily Mail, I Yeah, think. yeah, it went on for about three or four days. And they would say, the Daily Mail can reveal that Gary Young is a former Trotskyist. Yeah. And it was like, Bro, what's fucking about it? I wrote a front page Saturday <laughs> Review piece called Memoirs of a Teenage Trot. There was a clue. Yeah. A couple of breadcrumbs have been left there for them to nibble on, haven't they? Yeah. The Pulitzer is surely in the office. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Right, before we kick off um, more broadly, uh, we were going to give a big shout-out to the striking university workers, both lecturers and other university workers, many precarious, who are currently on strike because it's a all-out war against their pensions. Uh, many of us here, I think all of us have... Some, have you been to a picket line yet? Sort it out. You've been busy, to be I fair. haven't. I haven't. I have had a, a, a big week, but I haven't been to a picket line yet, but I will. She will. Uh, we'll both go together somewhere. Yeah. Um, maybe Bless. we can do a podcast there. That's not have you not been because of your condition? The, the, the baby has been... Uh, uh, <laughs> and also, <laughs> also, you believe that the pensions paid to university workers are exorbitant and they must be decimated. Yeah, I just think workers are getting too cocky. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's brilliant that my mum's on strike, very proud. Me and Gary were at Goldsmiths. We did a little teach out for them. Which we was great. Did. Our former colleague Becky Gardner uh, from the Garden, she she's at Goldsmiths now. But it, mm. it's great. I mean, it's just amazing at the moment. It's how... the longest higher education strike in British history. Apparently. Is that right? Yeah, and it has overwhelming support from the students. Sixty-one percent, according to YouGov, and they've occupied amazing, inspiring, courageous student occupations across the country. So it's about pensions, it's about marketisation, it's about getting the tuition fees, it's about a democratic education system. It's very exciting. Mm. I was at Goldsmiths and then I was at um, Imperial and then I wasn't in York because I was supposed to do a talk at York and um, but the strike was on so I, I couldn't, you know, so I, I, I didn't yeah. go. And um, one of the things that's been interesting to me about looking at the strike is just how generational, and you'll be able to tell me because you are of a different generation because I am old, that I saw, particularly the gold, uh, Goldsmiths picking line, I saw kind of young people who didn't exactly know what to do, that this is a kind of relatively rare new thing, this kind of, to see trade union militancy in this way, and they didn't kind of know what the etiquette was. Do you wave? Do you stand with them? Do you walk around? Do you know what I mean? What, how do you... How do you deal with the picket line? And it was quite it was quite interesting to me to see while most students support it, I'm not sure that the actual function of it, the the picket and you know what that's what that does, that a lot of them just haven't grown up with it. No. Don't know, that culture don't know how it works. Yeah, it's, which I just did think was interesting. But something is changing though. I was talking to a friend of mine who's doing a PhD and he's been down to the picket line for his university, which I think is Goldsmiths. And um you know, I was saying, I remember my lecturers went on strike when I was at university, which was 10 years ago now, because I'm also old. There, were, there wasn't really, like, the students just didn't really have any opinion on it, mm. you know, and if they did, it was, well, this is inconvenient for me. Mm. And so I think something has changed, Cause, actually. Because they try and divide and rule, which is, I mean, it's, it's astonishing, really, which is, 
you know, university lecturers and workers overwhelmingly opposed tuition fees. Many of them marched against it. The ECU, uh, who are the union who represent them, went on strike with the national. Uh, sorry, marched with the National Union of Students against them. Um, and then the government go, well, you know, those tuition fees, which we hiked. Well, how unfair is it that you have to pay mm. these huge tuition fees? And now you're being robbed of that money by the university lecturers who oppose the tuition fees. But students turn out are quite savvy. So the vast majority have seen through it. And you've got this massive politicisation of young people. I think it is, you know, because I find it interesting going back to when you were fleetingly, as the Daily Mail exposed by Googling your work, uh, that you were Trotskyist, um, which is that back in 1983, Thatcher had a nine-point lead amongst people 18 to 24. Mm. And now Labour have a 51-point lead in that age group. And that includes people at university. I mean, it, it, there has been an extraordinary politicisation. It's just really interesting. Well, yeah. And and um, let's just say you're 25. Then that has you born in, what, 1993? So most of your life you've known war. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> and for much of your and life crisis. you've known austerity. Mm. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, and volatility, and uh, and all of that stuff. So you, you know, you're 25. You were you were eight for uh, 9/11. You were you were 10 for the beginning of the Iraq War. And um, you you know you've, you've 15 with the financial collapse. Right, yeah. right. So you've been raised in this in this period of quite broad resistance right. to you know to a, to an awful an awful lot of things when those when those debates were really happening. So if you're as old as I am, 49, then I was 10 when Thatcher came in, mm. 12 for the Falklands War, was that 81? Then, you know, just... Long defeat, term, defeat, defeat, just, defeat. Just, you know, episodic victories, usually abroad. Nelson Mandela defeated the poll tax. Mm. A few of those things. But, um, um, yeah... Like a kind of one of the lost generations, really. Right, so what now are we kicking off with? Come on, subject master. Um, so we thought we'd kick off with uh, everybody's favourite topic because we went, our last podcast we didn't talk about it and we can't go long enough without talking about it. It is, of course, Brexit. Oh, we do. Oh, I do love some Brexit, mate. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> they call him, actually, he's renamed, he's renamed himself by, by Deepol, apparently, which is, I love Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you like Brexit so much, Gary? Yeah, well, this, this, these are some of the great questions of our time. <laughs> I was against Brexit, but uh, so I voted Remain. And I did think that, I do think, that there are some valid reasons why people were upset with the EU. I don't think it was all about racism. I don't even think it was all just about alienation in Britain. Or uh, I mean, there was a lot of that. And I think in the end bigotry and nostalgia and a lot of other things drove the vote. But I don't think that everybody who was in that car was thinking the same way. And that one of the issues is is the, an issue of democracy or a lack of democracy, lack of transparency in the EU. What intrigues me about that is that when you make that case, when you make that point, a bunch of kind of Euro-fundamentalists emerge and that what they do is that they think that the reason you think it's undemocratic is because you don't know how it works, when yeah. in fact it's because you know how it works that you think it's undemocratic. Yeah. And um, uh, and so I wrote a piece saying um, recently saying my vote for the for Remain was not an endorsement of the EU. I think that you know the EU needs reform, and I got this kind of tidal wave of um, quite weird, very patronising, quite daft. Uh, attacks which basically said you're stupid and you're lazy and you don't know what 
you're talking about. Which is particularly kind of, I think, particularly funny for me, because I studied languages at university. I studied French and Russian. Um, Definitely a spy. <laughs> I um, started my career at The Guardian in a section called Guardian Europe. And um, and I actually did vote uh, Remain, but none of none of that matters. And I do think what's fascinating about that that these people somehow didn't twig that one of the reasons that they lost was because they were so arrogant, because they were arrogant, mm. because they thought that anybody who disagreed with them was stupid, and um, because they thought that their understanding brooked no. Mm. Rivalry. I mean, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, uh, I so I want to campaign with another Europe is possible, um, which was basically re- re- was Remain and Reform. It was mm. look, obviously, you know, we're going to campaign against uh, what was at the time a very toxic xenophobic campaign. The Leave campaigns ran, including charlatans like Boris Johnson and uh, mm. the, our Foreign Secretary and Michael Gove. Um, but. But obviously, we thought it enshrined things which promote privatisation and the you know the austerity in the eurozone and and also the way Greece was treated, which has been ravaged by austerity, which uh, the German government and other EU states have imposed upon it. With you know most young people out of work, health serv- services ravaged. So there was that argument about we will we're not doing this because we're like woohoo the European Union is great. We did it on the basis we thought it'd be bad if we left, and mm. I think that's been kind of. Um, vindicated. And the thing is, millions of people who voted Remain were not EU fanatics. They were people who, many of them had problems with the EU different, in different ways, but voted like we did because we thought it would be better than the alternative. But it, I find this, because I now, like, look, we lost the referendum, we just got to make the best of it. But their view about people who voted Remain, that particular group of people who are very vocal on Twitter, to say the least, is... They've got the old, I think, attitude of, of, of the kind of the radical left at its worst, which is looking for traitors, not converts, mm. uh, kind of this sort of false consciousness that exists mm. that pe- you just need to, you know, people are blinded. And... The populace will wake up to the truth. Exactly. Yeah. All the people basically just need some sort of self-appointed vanguard because yeah. basically, you know, they're too stupid. In, in, I yeah. mean, these are caricatures of radical left. If they just see this one graph, yeah, then yeah. they'll really change yeah. their mind. Yeah, it's, 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 gonna, it's all in the leaflet. They just yeah. haven't seen the leaflet yet. We've yeah. got graphs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the graphs, first of all... I know you cannot live on graphs alone without <laughs> graphs life and not worth living. <laughs> the graphs aren't that dissimilar to the graphs that you would be shown when I studied Russia and lived in the Soviet Union, they would show to show you how democratic the Soviet Union was. And now you can do this, and then you do it, and there's a bloody arrow that goes around there, and then, you know, and boom, you know, there you are, right in the, you know, Central Committee. So some of, some of the arrows, it's like, yeah, but there's four arrows between me and any kind of action. What are you talking about? I think, like, the, what you were saying about arrogance is really interesting. I'm actually reading a, a book at the moment called All Out War, and it's by Tim Shipman, who's the political editor of the Sunday Times. He also wrote a great book called Fallout, which I actually prefer. All Out War is about the Remain and Leave campaigns, and Fallout is about the inside story of the Tory party. And Give the best anecdote. And a bit Labour. Just quickly, do that anecdote. I will, okay. I will explain the... So it's, it basically covers the period of time from the Brexit vote to the... Um, uh, to the... Uh, 
general election 2017. Mm -hmm. And my favourite line is uh, when Tim Shipman, he's talking about the when the exit poll came out and he in Tory HQ, he says, the silence was broken by the sound of retching. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so the reason I like Full Out Warbearer is because it has a happy ending. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but like, but the thing is interesting. So I don't agree with Tim Shipman's sort of theory of change, which is that a few like individuals and the decisions of a few individuals kind of shape politics. Mm. Although he does concede in the book that that's like not the whole story. But it is interesting to read it from that point of view because what I found was that the Leave campaign, you know, and I, I object strongly to the arguments that the Leave campaign made, particularly around immigration. But it did have a lot of, for one of a better word, like a lot of spunk. Do you know what I mean? It was like a group of people who were like, right, let's do this. We can do this. Let's like really, mm. you know, the odds are against us. We need to sort of, this is a war. We need to fight mm. this out. Um, whereas the Remain campaign was just like, well, we'll just convene, you know, a few people from like mm. the business networks and the la la la. Yeah. And then just <laughs> the votes will just roll in. And it yeah. you know, it was it the, the sort of attitude towards the campaigns were like, so different. Like with Leave, it was like, we actually have to win an argument here. Mm. Whereas with Remain, it was like, we just have to kind of stand back and, and win the referendum. And that is like, I think that is kind of what the problem was. I yeah, think. or I don't know if it was like we have to win an argument from Leave, but we have to kind of jam their arguments. Because say with immigration or the Brexit bus, it wasn't about winning an argument really, was it? But it was about we have to tell a story. Yeah. We have to that, tell yeah. a story yeah, you're right, that yeah. is kind of convincing. Whereas, and I thought this at the time, actually, I, I wrote a piece a few weeks before the vote saying, remain people wake up on the 24th of June wondering why people were so stupid and bigoted to have voted leave, then it, they might find out it's because they called them stupid and bigoted before the vote. Like, I found the arrogance astonishing beforehand. And it was, as you say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? And... Uh, it was almost felt that they were sullying themselves to kind of make an argument or make a story. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you'd have to be so yeah. unbelievably stupid to vote yeah. Leave, wouldn't you? Yeah. That sense. The Leave yeah. campaign told stories and made arguments, and the right campaign, the Remain campaign, sorry, uh, sought endorsements. Mm. That's what I think. Yeah, like, from the establishment at a time yeah, when yeah. people are angry and furious with the establishment. Yeah, like yeah. for understandable reasons. Do you remember when like the 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 polls were neck and neck and like they responded to it by getting some bloke from Goldman Sachs to talk about how important the EU is? Oh, it's gosh. just like, like I mean, what are you doing? I don't. I you know I did find you know the referendum aftermath was the worst political moment of my lifetime in the sense of it was just this orgy of reaction and the most reactionary elements of British society woke up that morning and went ace and you know and and. <laughs> And, and that was the thing, you know, and that they are not representative of Leave voters. They're not representative of the people I work with, many mm. of whom who, who voted Leave. And the part of Stop I'm from voted to leave the European Union. Um, but I mean that. But but nonetheless, it was this. It was this orgy reaction. The conservative right, you know, if they're smiling, there's obviously something very profoundly wrong. But it was my view that it is this kind of firstly this undemocratic elitist centrism which dominated the Remain campaign and which mm. still that continuity centrism still exists. It exists partly with the faction of the Labour Party as well and also of the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats. But for me now it is a case of, you know, we did we did lose. And what I think annoys many people probably listening to this now is well the lies and the racism and the hatred. 
I mean, we we lots of election campaigns are terrible, uh, and we still lose them. And it's almost this sense now of you know there's been an administrative error because you know mm. and and you know because this is so ludicrous, and we just need to find you know get a second referendum or keep doing referendums until we get the right result, which is how people interpret it. And that's why I think Labour have no choice if they when the, you know they already lost a few Leave seats. The few Leave seats they lost were pro Leave, like where I was campaigning the other week in Mansfield in in the, in the East Midlands. That what they've done is go, we will accept the referendum result, but we will, you know, do it in a way that doesn't trust the country by, or, and, you know, have a hard border in Northern Ireland by having a customs union. And I don't want to say there was no alternative because I nearly said that, and that's got a, a bad pedigree, that, that particular term. But it seems to me that what the left has to do is not abandon the pitch to the reactionary elements who then would shape what Brexit is. We, we do have to come up with a Brexit which is progressive. And the bit which is going to annoy, I think some people, does annoy people. We were arguing for Remain and Reform before, but now we're leaving. The bits we're going to reform, we just abandon now, you know? And we that means taking on things like restrictions on state aid, which are impediments on a left-wing programme. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I'm not sure that I entirely agree, only because I do think I would not make a priority of a second referendum i definitely would that's not where my emphasis would lie it could be and i wouldn't kind of um i wouldn't shy away from it if this were the case there, there may well be a moment at which there needs to be a democratic engagement with what we have what we where we're going and if we don't think that where we're going is really tenable then i think it's difficult to endorse it so and I think that's tricky, but I think it's um, I think it would be a dereliction of democratic responsibility for people who are elected to then go and say, yeah, everything I know about everything that's said is that this is going, this is really really going to go off the rails, and here's my here's my stamp. I do think that that vote should be honoured. I don't think it should be worshipped. No, no, okay, I agree. Do you know what I mean? Okay. I mean, I hate the result, but yeah. it's a well, case of what do you do about it, really? Well, right, and um, the first thing you do isn't ignore it, try and reverse it, mm-hmm. or deny it, or say people didn't know what they were voting for, or or whatever. Or it was an advisory referendum. That's one of their favourite... Yeah. It's like, you can't... If you go around the country telling people, after they got, uh, you know, a leaflet from the government shoved through their door saying, we will honour it no matter what, and... All the you know the opposition party did, and MPs voted to accept it, and then go well, on a technical route. I mean, you know, technically the Queen is the head of the government and runs the country, but in practice that doesn't work, and you can't anyway. What do you I think? I think that um, yeah, I mean, I think first advisory referendum is just stupid, isn't it? Like you know, if, if we just wanted to know what people thought, we would have taken an opinion poll, not done a referendum. They call it that, though. They say, well, it was just an opinion poll. Well, it was a ridiculously expensive opinion poll. So so I do think, you know, I agree with that. But and I, I totally agree with what Gary was saying about we can't we can't just pretend it hasn't happened. We can't pretend people didn't know what they were voting for. But I do think I do think we can uh, oppose Brexit. We can convince people. We, we can, like, argue to stay in the EU. But I think that's what it needs. It needs an argument. We need to go about convincing people accepting that they don't agree with us and trying to convince them otherwise and accepting that maybe that they have a point when they when they disagree with us rather than just like sticking our fingers in our ears i mean um we were you were talking there about like what it was like for you waking up on the morning of the referendum i remember didn't wake up did we well i remember i did actually i went to bed at one because um as soon as sunderland went i was like all right well that's that's it then and i went to bed but like um as an itv it was it was surrounded by 
you know, well, so people like Ed Miliband and stuff, and I remember coming to me going, oh, what do you think? I think it was when Newcastle was narrowly for Remain. It was a bit like Newcastle yeah. shouldn't be narrowly for Remain. But then I remember, like, the Brexiteers looking pretty, pretty cool. Because I went to ITV for the 2015 election, then the referendum. And so for 2017, I forced my partner to come. For more uh, support. For more support. So, because it, it became like this ITV, headqu- ITV headquarters, this kind of citadel of hell, of hellfire, which I still have nightmares about. Sorry. Well, on the morning that, like, when Trump won, I, like, I've been saying for weeks before he won, like, um, Trump's going to win, Trump's going to win. But I hadn't really, like, accepted it emotionally because in my head I was still, a, I was still, like... Yeah, but really though, look at him. Whereas with Brexit, I like, I went, as soon as Sunderland went, I was like, all right, well, that's that then. And went to bed and I honestly slept like a baby. <laughs> because like, I woke up and I was fine. Because I, I was like, I had completely accepted for a while that we would leave the EU. Because I was just like, I don't understand why we would stay. Because I, there's been no case made to stay in the EU. Mm. There's been a lot of arguments to leave. But there's been no case made other than a bit of scaremongering and like, well, well, it is best. It's been, that was like it. So I, I just couldn't see the like the vehicle or the argument through which people would vote to remain. So I, I just like, I'd, by the time the vote came, I'd completely emotionally accepted. And I think that, and you know, even now when the negotiations are like a shambles and it looks like it's going to be a disaster and you have these reports saying in any scenario, the economy will be worse... I still think, well, you know, like people aren't going to change their minds because there's not, no one's making a case to remain. Yeah. I thought there were two, two things in particular stood out for me. I did not assume that we would vote to leave. I thought it was touch and go. But one was that nobody, nobody to my mind made the case for the EU. And that's because it's a very difficult case to make in its current form. Nobody made the case for the EU. They made the case for why it would be worse to leave. They made the case for why there are some things that you get from the EU that are really good, but nobody made the case for that institution if they did only hear it, like from the Remain campaign. I'm sure there were individuals in places, but I didn't hear that case. And the other was that if you have failed to have a substantive conversation about immigration for the best part of 50 years or more, then don't expect that you can have that conversation in a minute just before a referendum about something else. You can't. And so all of those Labour people in the centre who've been playing with fire, talking, you know, talking smack about immigration, the Cameron, May and the bloody, you know, vans driving around, if you've created a toxic environment for immigration, which both Labour and the Tories have done, and, and then the other side lead on immigration, you've got nothing. And I think, because I read um, All Out War 2 by um, Tim Shipman, and um, it's a Linton Crosby phase, but I've been using it <laughs> since I learned it, which is, you can't fatten a pig on market day. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That it's, it's, um, don't think that you can let these ideas fester mm-hmm. for a couple of generations, and then you click your fingers and you say, well, actually, immigration's all right. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the political shocks of the last year. I think what people in politics can take should should learn from that is like actions have consequences. You can't just make reactionary arguments to like achieve a short term goal and to think that doesn't bed in somewhere mm-hmm. and won't have consequences later down mm-hmm. the line. Because what we're seeing now is that so many of the decisions that, like, for want of a less UKIP phrase, that the political and media class have taken for short term ends 
are now becoming a central part of our politics. Yeah, yeah. The are coming due. Yeah, I mean, exactly yeah. that. I mean, I think, you know, basically we have these entrenched social, economic injustices, insecurities that don't just scar society, but define it. And many of them have been, are seen through the prism of immigration for many years, partly because there has been, until re- relatively recently, the lack of a left message that mm. could provide an alternative narrative and understanding about why there is a lack of housing or lack of secure jobs or wages are falling or what or anything like that. And that's because the political and media elite have encouraged that. But one other thing I wanted to ask, it's an argument some centrists have made, which I am quite sympathetic to, which is, so you've got this type of centrist who basically thinks we're the same ones, the world's gone mad. You've got the right-wing Brexiteers, you've got the Corbynite left, and they're the mad people and we're the same people. But one argument they've made, I think there is something to it. The Tory Brexiteers made a decision to kind of wrap themselves up in revolutionary zeal. Mm. And what that has meant is it's it's then kind of helped kind of cement or legitimise the idea of a radical revolutionary discourse in British society. And, and it's kind of helped the left in a way, because traditionally they would be, we're the party of stability and security. But now they're, we're taking on the elite revolution, basically, the Eurocrats and the media and political establishment. And and, and that has kind of, it, it's very difficult then to argue against the left. So in a weird way, and this argument has been made by centuries, they have enabled maybe the left? I don't know what people think about that. Well, yeah, I th- well, I guess I think that as elites have become more and more disengaged, mm. which they have. And as inequality has... Very Gramscian. ...grown and grown. The political parties eventually lose connection with the class that they're supposed to represent. Yeah, yeah. So the... the uh, and, and therefore, both of them have their insurgents. So, I mean, what we've seen over the last two years is a Labour Party that can't represent the interests of Labour and a Tory party that actually can't represent the interests of capital. Yeah. The capital does not want us to leave the EU. No. Big business does not want us to leave the EU. That's kind of really, that's not great for international capital at all. So you've got these two parties who have proved themselves incapable or reluctant to um, exercise their primary function. And then there's been this revolt in both cases because arguably neither were proving themselves fit for purpose. Mm. You know, the Conservative and Unionist Party was threatening or has threatened the union mm. um, and continues to do so and is proving actually quite bad for business. Should we chat a bit about the far right? Lovely. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to cheerfully say that. Yeah. Yeah. So, the far right then. Yes. Yeah. Let me get the biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations to the far right because they are doing very well. Careful, people will clip that. Mm. Oh, that's true, yeah. Okay, well, they'll, they'll keep it in, though. Keep it in. Uh, keep it in. Ruin my career. Go on. <laughs> Even though I've got a child to support. <laughs> so, yeah, they're doing really well. The reason I thought we could talk about this is because you've written a lot about the far right, haven't you, mm. Harry? Mm-hmm. What's um, going on? What's going on? Yeah, with actually, them. It, well, it dovetails very easily into what we were, what we've been talking about. Actually, I think I think that people feel out of control. They feel out of control, and they reach for the thing that they think can buttress them against these forces. So there are neoliberal globalisation. Basically, money can move wherever it wants in the world. Machines can move wherever they want in the world. Suddenly, your high street doesn't look like your high street anymore. It looks like every high street. Uh, Suddenly, your kind of, you know, your local schools aren't really, you know, you you don't have the right to go to your local schools because everybody can choose. and, And all of these things kind of 
kind of rip the guts out of people's lives. Meanwhile, working lives are getting less secure, uh, their wages are stagnating, and they look around for someone to blame. Well, the market, or neoliberal globalisation, is a force without a face. It's mm-hmm. a system without centre. You can barely bloody get through the word or the words without people falling asleep. If you said, well, let's demonstrate against austerity, say the Greeks, so let's demonstrate against austerity. Where do they demonstrate? Where do they demonstrate? They, they, you know, Frankfurt or Washington, the IMF, or Greece isn't running the show. Mm-hmm. So then people feel out of control and they reach for the things that they feel they can control. And sometimes that's culture, ethnicity, place and they rest nation nation and they rest on that so you know if all else fails as i wrote about the uh, uh, american situation for some white americans their whiteness is all they've got left yeah mm. they've got the, the the unions have gone their institutions have gone their job security is gone their health care is gone what they got left well they've got the notion of privilege that at least they're not somebody else at least they're not black, at least they're not Latino, at least they're not a refugee or an immigrant. And um, people are scared. And the far right has a message for you mm. if you're scared. And it's, that it's them, whoever they are. And of course, it's, um, it's a horrible lie that it wasn't the Roma that were trading in default, you know, credit default swaps. Mm. It wasn't uh, Syrian refugees who tanked the economy. It wasn't asylum seekers that gave a load of money to bail out the banks. It wasn't these people's uh, fault. But you can't get your hands on the bankers. You can't get your hands on these others. But you can get your hands on the person who looks different, sounds different, or who's just arrived. I wonder what you think about. I've got this sort of theory that, like, well, it's not just my theory, but I, I sort, of, I think that one of the things that appeals to people about the far right is that. You know, they they experience this sense of having something uh, lost, and I think that's where like whiteness comes into it. This sort mm. of f- status being lost. Mm. You know, so Kianga Yamata Taylor, who is a, a heroine of mine and a friend of yours, mm-hmm. uh, we saw her give a speech. Me and Owen, well, you Owen was speaking actually. Yeah, I was on the platform with her. Um, yeah. I was She's in great. the audience like a pleb, but um, <laughs> I saw her. Yeah, in this speech, she said, uh, "White privilege runs very thin." For um, I'm paraphrasing, um, for an, a group in America whose life expectancy is going down, mm. and I think you know, so it's like that. But that's where the whiteness element comes into it. I feel is the sense of like status being having been lost. So something is a loss that's happened there, and that um, people want to regain that. They want to regain their former status. And I think that to me like ties in with the idea of voting for someone like Trump because for Americans it's not just about a loss of your status as a white person it's also about the loss of your status as an American as a citizen mm. of a great superpower which mm. is now in decline and so there's something about voting for this sort of um, uh, proto-fascist strongman and all the things that he promises that will regain not only a personal sense of pride but also a sense of nationhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's um, not all senses of entitlement that white people have are wrong. Some of them are right. Like a sense of entitlement that a white person might have to decent health care, to a secure job, mm. to a uh, welfare safety net. Everybody should be entitled to that. Mm. And so, of course, that sense of entitlement is wrong for them as a white person, but as a human being, everybody should be should be entitled to that. So when they lose that, they get very angry. Mm. Now, 
One of the reasons, if you look at, you know, people say, well, Trump vote was about class, which it was partly, but not primarily, because it's mostly wealthy people who vote for him, so it was about class, it was about rich people voting themselves. But to the extent that poor people did vote for, for him, it couldn't have been about poverty alone, because African Americans are poor and white Americans, mm. they didn't vote for him. Mm. But one of the distinctions is African Americans never had an illusion about what America was going to provide for them. African Americans never thought, if I work hard and play by the rules, I can get on. Any African American who thought that has been paying attention. Yeah. Whereas white Americans were under that delusion mm. for quite a long time. Mm, and and their and then their wages started stagnating and their living standards begin to collapse and their children, which is a mathma in America, their children start they started expecting that their children would have a worse life than they did. In America, the idea is that every year gets better, every generation gets better and bigger and stronger and wealthier and happier, and this stopped happening. So Langston Hughes, you know, said there, there, there was no... The great um, poet. Yeah, the um, Harlem Renaissance poet who wrote this um, great poem called Let America Be America Again, and he said that was never that America for me. So for African Americans, there was less investment in this idea, but for white Americans, there was a big investment, mm. and it failed them. And once it found them, they cast around and they looked for someone to blame and someone to clutch onto, and some of them reached out for Trump. And it also explains their anxiety about Obama. I used to say, when people said, oh, it's racism, and I said, if only it was just racism, it's so much more than that, that Obama represents every, kind of almost embodies every anxiety that white America might have. His father was a Muslim, non-practicing, but nonetheless, at a time when America has lost a couple of wars to predominantly Muslim countries and there's been some uh, terrorist attacks. He was the product of a mixed-race relationship at a time when people who define themselves as more than one race are growing faster than anybody else. His dad was an immigrant at a time when there was massive concern about immigration. His father was Kenyan, he lived in Indonesia for a while, he went travelling in Pakistan in this moment where globalization is freaking lots of americans out and they think they're losing their jobs to well they're losing their jobs to people mm. all, all over the world and yes he's black that too uh and um you know white people are going to lose their majority status in about 20 odd years so in all sorts of ways he represented every single anxiety mm. that they could have about the world and and um uh and at home and trump bizarrely, kind of represents the antithesis of that. He's the anti-Obama. Mm. He's a step into a kind of lurid, madman past of um, entitlement, of um, sleaziness. boorishness, yeah. sleaziness, um, vulgarity. And um, sadly, for enough people, not most, and it's always important to remember that he didn't win the popular vote, but for enough people in the right places, they preferred that to what else was on offer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, we'll keep focusing on America, but I mean, more broadly, what we I think we've seen vindicated is the sense of you know, back in the nineteen nineties, third way centrism um, dominated. So you had Tony Blair, mm. prime minister here. You had the Clintons in the White House. You had Lionel Jospin who was the French socialist leader, who, you know, again, shifted to the right, like all those parties did. Schroeder in Germany. Schroeder in Germany. He went on to attack the welfare state there and so on. Uh, and you had the Spanish socialists in power. You had in the Netherlands and so on. 
And what we're seeing everywhere are, you know, not just obviously the loss of Clinton. They always used to have dinner together as well. I read, um, unfortunately, I read Hillary Clinton's memoirs, um, Living History, recently. Real page turn up. It's just a 500-page <laughs> press release. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, it's very boring. But she does say, um, there's a whole chapter called The Third Way, and she talks about how it was a global political project and how they all had dinner with each other. And the sociologist Anthony Giddens, who oh, yeah, is largely yeah. seen as the father of... Um, Blairism, centrism, whatever but, you want to call it. But now it's striking, that's in collapse everywhere. I mean, mm. in utter, total decay. Obviously in America, but also in you know Germany, the Social Democrats are on less than 20% in the polls now. Uh, in, in Netherlands, on 7%. The French Socialist, 6%. Uh, Spain went from over 40% to around 20%. Um, and what, what we've seen is, because what was interesting in Spain is you've got the rise of a radical left Podemos party, and that is what activists say there, and the, the so-called indignados, this mass movement in 2011 when millions of Spaniards took to the streets, is one of the reasons they didn't come have a anti-immigrant populist party because the anger was directed at the right targets. But equally, you know, you see social democratic parties partly hemorrhaging to right-wing populism um, everywhere. But take France, for example. So you have this uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the radical left. Many would, some of the radical left have... Have, have particular problems with him. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Come well, on. I... He speaks for highly viewing. I've got a lot of time. <laughs> He's the father of my child. Is he? <laughs> this you heard it here first. Be careful, that could actually go viral. But do keep it in. Please keep that in. Uh, and do tweet about that, everyone. <laughs> um, anyway, but I... Yeah, but I mean, I, I have a lot of time for Mélenchon. I, went, I was campaigning with him in, in Barcelona for me back in December uh, during the elections there. But he, before his rise in the polls, because he started off in the French presidential election last year... And this is depressing. The far-right National Front were leading amongst young French people. And it took Mélenchon to peel mm. off some of those because they wanted a candidate to take on the system. And it's only because of the quirks of the electoral system that Macron won because he went through to the second round. The top four candidates had similar percentages, but then you know anyone would, just, anyone would defeat um, Marine Le Pen. But it does show the, what the lesson of America, and people go, oh, she won the popular vote, but then again, everyone thought it would be more likely an asteroid hitting Earth. Uh, than Donald Trump becoming president. It was it was seen as kind of laugh, you know, a joke. Uh, it does show that only, you know, a Bernie Sanders-style left populism or here, a Corbyn-style uh, style left populism, which has stopped, it's reversed the fragmentation. We were having it. We, we had... Uh, the Labour Party was hemorrhaging votes to uh, civic nationalists in Scotland, the right-wing populists of UKIP, the left-wing Greens, and it's come back together because of this left-wing populism. And the lesson surely is, everywhere that dominates the old form in the post-crash era, those parties are just hemorrhaging in every single direction, and only that project is proven to, to avoid that kind of disaster. So I think the first bit is proven. The third way is finished, and those parties that continue that centrist, managerial, milquetoast nonsense, just kind of people are just not having it. I was in America before the presidential election for a month, and basically people like, we quite like Obama, but we don't want another term, mm. actually, of that. It's, it's, not, it's not enough. We're hurting. And there are enough people hurting to make that real. And I think in all of the places that you mentioned, Owen... Those parties, and you would just have to imagine if Owen Smith had won, that the parties who carried on as though everything was fine or nothing fundamental had to change uh, would be out. I'm not sure that it's proven yet 
the winning nature of the left turn. But we ain't the, won yet. Well, not only are we not won yet, but the, I'm now beginning to think, for example, in America, that Bernie is looking a bit dated to me, and he's looking a bit dated because I'm wondering how he's going to engage with... He was basically good on the economic stuff. How is he going to engage with this Me Too moment with the kind of there's been a massive increase in the number of women candidates in america there's there is more going on in a lot of these places than just the banks which is bernie's forte he loves it doesn't he, he loves he does. about Wall and he talks yeah. a bit about identity politics as not being a... yeah and it becomes clear that he doesn't really understand what he's talking about and when he talks about black lives matter it kind of gets a bit awkward and you know and he's and i don't know I think he's great, and you know, obviously, I'm not saying he's racist or sexist or anything like that. I'm not convinced that he can capture that. Uh, That's what Sanders always said, though, didn't he? He said, actually, what would ha- you know if he if he won the presidency, you know, the battle would then begin, and, and you'd have to have massive mobilisations on the streets. And I think that that kind of that's his theory of change, really. mm. and that that was vindicated, I think, for example, over. Um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, mm. in the sense that actually, you know, Obamacare is, is a limited gain. It's a gain, but a limited mm. one. And the point the left in America put to me is that actually that was the biggest shining victory of the so-called centrist, actually, of, of, of this generation, mm. in a sense. But it was saved originally when Trump came in and there was going to be, you know, the Republicans were slavering mm. to, to finally get rid of it by massive mobilisations across the country by, by progressives, by leftists, and so on. To, and, and that works by putting pressure, particularly on the sorts of Democrats who might go flaky over it. Mm. And, and that would be, if, if something like, if Sanders... And, and so irony, irony the, the irony was, you know, put to me that the biggest victory of centrism, this Obamacare, which is a li- limited, um, but still made a big, you know, gain that made a big mm. impact on so many people's lives, was, was saved by the left mobilising in streets and communities... And that, that would happen in a Corbyn government too. You would have to have massive mobilisations in communities and workplaces. It wouldn't be a case of, you know, the levers would just be pulled suddenly in, 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 in the centres of political power, such mm. as they are. Yes, no, that, I mean, that's when the rubber hits the road or, you know, pick your cliche. Mm. But I always thought that one of Obama's central problems, there was the problem that he was never particularly left-wing, actually. Yeah. Nobody, you know, people assumed he was because he was black, which is funny. But, um, uh, but one of the central problems was that there was this criticism of him from the left, which effectively expected him to create the left opposition to himself. Oh, yeah. To say, why aren't you doing, why aren't you taking on the bankers? And it's like, well, individually, he can't take on the bankers, can he? There would have to be a massive, there, there would have to be a massive number of people standing behind him, and he would have to be more scared of them than he is of the bankers. Mm-hmm. And all you're doing is saying, why aren't you being us? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, you have to... I remember a very observant column by a little-known journalist, Gary Young. So-called. <laughs> talking about this very thing about how um, liberals were too uh, starry-eyed about Obama to really push mm. him in that way. And I think that's true. I think, I mean, he is like a kind of um, exceptional figure in terms of his like um, charisma and his, his sort of um, ability to deliver incredible speeches and his presence and and all of that. And he was made into a symbol of, of a human symbol of progress as well. You know, there was a mm. picture of him on the bus where Rosa yeah. Parks did her protest and all that kind of stuff. And can I just say, and the stature, you think that he comes in between 
George W. Bush mm. and Donald Trump, mm. then you get a sense of like his intellectual stature given the standard of people who are rising in the political class, George W. Bush and Donald yeah. Trump and Obama. That's like someone doing A-levels sitting in a reception class. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, but it's true. But like, you know, but I think all of that meant that um, a lot of the constituencies that should have been pushing him to in a more radical direction were actually too busy fawning over him. And also, I think because of the extent of the racism against him, like Rush Limbaugh making it racist. Rush Limbaugh is a shock jock reactionary right wing commentator in America, by the way. Um, he, he made up uh, racist nursery rhymes mm. about... Barack Obama on his radio show and you know it's, it was so vicious that I think that there was an instinct as well to defend him yeah or an inability to both defend him against racism and push him mm. you know in his job which I do think therein lies a lesson in terms of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and what you know the kind of relationship that we have to have to a Corbyn opposition and government which is critical support mm. which is that we support him and I support uh, that party but the support isn't unconditional and um, um, and actually Thatcherism had its outriders didn't it who yeah. would always push when Thatcher was in power would think tanks columnists the press backbenchers who would always argue for more radical policies mm. um, and strategies than Thatcherism was engaged in. Mm. And, and that shifted the terms of debate in a way that gave more political space for Thatcherism to be more Thatcherism. Yeah, I, yeah I think we have, to be, um, we have to be strategic about it. And I mean, interestingly, Jeremy is not the kind of guy, it seems to me, who attracts excessive fawning. Do you know what I mean? He's, I don't know. <laughs> well, have, you, have you been out with him in public? Because I was out out at like yeah. a protest and he was there and it, he, it was like one of the Beatles had turned up. Well, see, I think that there is some of that, but that unlike Ben, I've been out with, you know, I've been out with Tony Ben, the mm. late Tony Ben, I've, I've been it. around with Ken Livingstone and it's different. Mm. It's different because Jeremy is not particularly charismatic. Uh, I don't think anybody can accuse him of that. Um, He's an anti-demagogic... Um, I mean, this is what's interesting, isn't it? Because that's been a problem with the left often, hasn't it? We've mm. had characters... That, I'm not going to name them, but people can work them out. George Galloway. Well, there we go. Uh, who, are, who are basically <laughs> very... You had to, It's my pregnancy hormone. But just generally, quite... Demog- I mean, very charismatic. George Galloway, by the way, is exceptionally charismatic. And, you know, I remember watching in my early 20s and going, you know, hairs on the back of my neck. And, you know, it's a tragedy, really, with George Galloway in terms of his... You know what? What he trajectory? Trajectory, but yeah, no. But we did have that kind of the demagogic kind mm. of, uh, and and often people who are quite, you know, maybe have messianic complexes. And mm. Corbyn doesn't have that, and that actually helps, doesn't it? In terms of a popular, because it's a populism. Yeah, that's what he represented in the election. It was, you know, this idea of the majority against the vested corrupt mm. elites. But it wasn't demagogic. He was, you know, it goes on his allotment. He, he yeah. drink, drinks tea. I mean, I think I, I'm not denying that there are that there are people out there. I've always had a criticism of him, particularly performatively. But I remember one piece after Labour lost the by-elections, uh, that by-election in, I can't remember where it was, and they just scraped through in Stoke. Copeland. Uh, Copeland. I'm saying this is not good. This is not good. It was a day after, and um, uh, we shouldn't be putting a lipstick on this pig, you know. Uh, the pig being the losses, not Corbyn. And it was peculiar, some of the pushback I got from that, 
from people who didn't <laughs> couldn't have thought that those results were good, but thought any criticism was heinous. Yeah, I wrote a similar pro- uh, piece, uh, basically quite strongly critical of um, Corbyn after the Copeland by-election. And I got a lot of angry messages for a long time afterwards. And I often, and when actually when the, when um, the general election, the hung parliament, I still got people sending me screenshots from that piece saying that, you know, how dare you be happy about this when, yeah. you, when yeah. you were criticising. I think it. that that's a relatively yeah. small number it's of very, people. Yeah, it is really. small, And yeah. kind of, um, generally speaking, Jeremy Corbyn is like, everybody's favourite, or not everybody, because lots of people really hate him, but your favourite nerd, mm. right? He's not kind of... Um, uh, even that absolute boy stuff is kind of... Ironic. Parody, yeah, very yeah. much so, yeah. And it's one of the challenges, I think, that the uh, the media, the hostile media have towards him, mm. is on one level, they can't get it right. On the one level, they portray him as an ineffective, sandal-wearing, mm-hmm, jam-making mm-hmm. nerd. Mm-hmm. And then they have him as a kind of... James Bond, Soviet... Yeah, and it's like, menace. Yeah, like it's a mixture of kind of Mr. Bean and James Bond, and it doesn't really... People are like, who am I supposed to hate here? Like, when they when they, when they they framed Tony Benn, they had it. Yeah. You know, they had him. Swivel-eyed, self-hating, uh, tough. When they got Ken Livingston, lizard-loving, eccentric, mm. you know, red Ken... IRA loving with Jeremy, it kind of doesn't really no, work. Doesn't they, they, right, they have yeah. not settled on a on a demonic kind of character for yeah. him, which they even did with it wasn't demonic, but with Ed Miliband, it was kind of your least favourite nerd. Yeah, when in Fallout, uh, Tim Shipman writes that a lot of Tory MPs say that they would go, would turn up to people's doorsteps, Tory voters' doorsteps, and slag off Corbyn, and they would voters would say to them. You're being mean. <laughs> what? Why? Why do you keep talking about this guy in this way? You know, and it's like, and I think it's because the sort of hysteria, the press hysteria around Jeremy was so extreme that, like, once you actually compared it to the reality, which is this kind of eccentric jam-making guy, mm-hmm. it just it just was weird, and it just seemed like bullying mm. and very incongruous. And mm. I think that is why the attempts to smear him so mm. far have been so inept. Just finally then, um, yeah, Trump, how much trouble is he in? And, you know, what should the left strategy be, do you think, in America? Well, I think he's in a lot of trouble. I mean, he's in a lot of trouble for um, two reasons, really. First of all, organisationally, in the White House, he's losing people. They are either rats leaving a sinking ship or he's just firing people. So this last week it was Rex Tillerson it was Hope Hicks before that wasn't it it was Hope Hicks people just they've had enough and what's interesting about that is that he he stood as a businessman as a manager and here's someone who is a terrible manager a terrible manager I mean that amount of turnover in any kind of department and he would be out so there's that and also interestingly he's famous for telling people you're fired he doesn't actually tell people you're fired personally. He no, does it. Tweets. He gets other people to do it, or he tweets it. So there was this kind of there was this mess this week with Rex Tillerson, uh, and that's the first bit of trouble he's in. Is that he's increasingly isolated, mm-hmm. uh, and increasingly has fewer and fewer people to actually do the work. So yeah, like yeah. half of the diplomats, the senior diplomats, have just left the sec- uh, the State Department because they've just had enough. The second problem he's in, and that was highlighted very much this week, is an electoral problem which is that 
basically the Republicans are being hammered. Every by-election, um, and there was one in Pennsylvania this week, they are being hammered. This week, Pennsylvania's 18th district, um, this was a district that Trump won by 20 points in 2016, a district that Democrats didn't even bother to contest in the last two elections, just no point. And the Republicans lost it. Only narrowly, but if they'd even won it narrowly, it wouldn't have mattered. If you It'd take... be like the equivalent of the Tories losing Whitney. Or yeah, yeah. Like I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. if you take the swathe of uh, by-elections and other elections that have taken place since he was elected, there's been a 16-point swing to the Democrats. Mm. There mm. are midterm elections in November, mm. which is when the Americans vote for all of the House of Representatives, the lower chamber, and a third of the Senate, which is the upper chamber. And in these midterm elections, by all accounts, Republicans are going to get an absolute drumming. Now, a shellacking. A shellacking, which is what Obama called it in 2010. Here's the rub. So there's the silver lining. The cloud is that, first of all, things are going to get worse before they get better. People thought that you couldn't get any worse than Rex Tillerson, former head of ExxonMobil, now Secretary of State, absolutely appalling in a range of ways. Anyway... The person coming after him, Mike Pompeo, is by all accounts worse. Worse on climate change, hates Iran. <laughs> worse than the former head of ExxonMobil. It takes something. When former George W. Bush advisors are saying, he is terrible, these are, you know, the people that ran, like brought you the Iraq war are saying, this guy's a nut job. You really have to take that seriously. He is um, uh, worse on climate change, worse on Iran, uh, worse on everything. Worse on everything. Uh, Islamophobic, crazy person. And that is now the America's top diplomat. Great. Uh, which is great. Trump says, yeah, he thinks, he thinks more like me, which that would tell you everything. And replacing him as head of the CIA is uh, a woman who actually oversaw torture in one of their dark, Sites, um, it's a woman, though. Entirely. Yeah, so victory for feminism. Yeah, a yeah. female torturer. That yeah. was what I described. Yeah, so she breaks <laughs> through the glass ceiling. And then All the women who are torturers, put your hands up at me. Ellie looked at me with horror there. Carry on. What's going on? I'm being tortured right now. <laughs> so rather than having just people support torture in the White House, you now have torturers in the White House. Uh, things are going to get worse before Lovely. they get better. So, it's been an absolute pleasure. Ajitpod will be back, probably... Well, firstly, Gary's been an absolute superstar. Everyone, wherever you are, unless you're driving, in which case, do not do this. But everyone else, clap, you know, give them a round of applause in your own private space. Or... Yeah, and just to clarify, just in case there was any confusion, I'm not pregnant with Jean-Claude... What's his name? Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Jean or Tim Shipman's baby. But whose is it then? We, it's, it's, tune in course, for the next podcast and find out. It's Owen's, of course. Oh, Ellie, honestly. Told Did you convert that. him? <laughs> she I've has, been trying for years. She's cured me of my uh, my sin. Um, <laughs> and on that, on that bombshell, thank you, Gary. Big round of applause. Thank you for having me. It's been a laugh. Thank you very much. And we will speak to you very, very soon. Bye. Bye. But I don't worry about a thing Because I know nothing's going to be all right. Thank you.